Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Patrick Riley, and this is New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ladale Winling, Associate Professor of History at Virginia Tech University, about his new book, Building the Ivory Tower, Universities and Metropolitan Development in the 20th Century, released in 2018 by University of Pennsylvania Press. In its pages, Winling tracks six universities morphing from turn-of-the-century products of real estate speculation to city-shaping property management firms. The chapters reconstruct how university administrators schmoozed with state officials to win military research contracts, devised new legal means to maintain racial segregation, and directed knowledge production in the service of capital. Waddell also speaks about his ongoing digital project on redlining called Mapping Inequality. A link to the project is on the New Books in History webpage for this episode. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Waddell. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering if you can begin by telling us a little bit about how you came to this project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was, in fact, an undergraduate at uh, Western Michigan University, a history major, and uh, a couple of, you know, we'll say major uh, student parties in local neighborhoods broke out and, in fact, kind of spilled into violence where police were called and then repelled and then a riot squad uh, was brought out. Um, and this sparked really significant and acrimonious uh, a political response from the city of Kalamazoo. And I thought I was a s- senior in college and I thought, well, geez, uh, this is, I mean, uh, unbelievable, unprecedented, it seemed to me. And uh, I actually wanted to um, read about 
university city politics. And this is in 2000, 2001, 2002. And um, actually did not find um, much in the university library on um, universities and kind of city politics or urban history. And so this, this kind of stuck with me over the course of my master's program. And then I realized that this is something that um, there was a gap in the literature that I could fill with, uh, with graduate research, but not just a gap, that there was very little of this kind of overlap or interface between urban history and the history of higher education. And so sparked by these kind of events at my, at my undergraduate institution, um, it set me on a path which um, I think um, helped to make that bridge between higher education and urban history. Great. And I'm also curious how you came to choose the case studies that you did, because as you note in the book, the processes that you cover were happening all over the country, suburbanization, increasing federal support for university expansion, and as you just mentioned, struggles between community groups, um, universities, and uh, uh state, local, and federal governments. So what drew you to the universities that you studied in the book? Um, so pretty, pretty broadly, while I was a graduate student, um, I took a, a dissertation kind of um, prospectus course with my graduate advisor, Robert Fishman. And um, he said, uh, whatever you do, like, make sure it's important. Make sure it's it matters, and you don't need to be too modest in your ambitions for both your dissertation and then with an eye towards the eventual book. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I'll write the history of you know this this kind of like uh, the interaction between these two types of institutions over the course of the 20th century. How am I going to do that? Um, the standard, I think, in um, urban history is to use case study. And I thought that would, would have been a little bit too modest, that if I was going to have the broad ambition of telling the history of higher education and kind of urban history and politics and development over the course of the 20th century, one university and community wasn't going to cut it. And so um, kind of parceled thought about how um, individual eras in terms of political governance, in terms of economic development, in terms of um, trends and capacity in higher education would lend themselves to the selection or um, finding a kind of representative institution or partnership kind of interaction between a university and a city. All of that is background um, to that selection process. And I also got the very good advice from um, graduate advisors that um, if you can write about a place that is already known to a certain extent, um, it'll help you. If you can kind of put a new layer or a new lens upon um, a place that people already care about, um, then half of your work is done for you. And so that's in part what 
what the logic was behind the selection of uh, Ball State University and Muncie, Indiana. Um, the work of um, Robert and Helen Lind in the Middletown Studies, uh, I think, had put that on that institution and that community um, on the map among humanists and social sciences. Um, I'm a man who loves Chicago, and my late first wife um, taught at Northwestern and uh, while while I was a candidate in graduate school. And so a Chicago area institution seemed like a no-brainer. And because Arnold Hirsch had um, um, done the work, had a chapter in Making the Second Ghetto on the University of Chicago, um, it was a bit foolhardy, but also a sign of my kind of pragmatism in the midst of this ambition to kind of follow up and extend that work on the University of Chicago, Hyde Park, and the South Side of Chicago more broadly. Um, I played a hunch with in the selection of the University of Texas and Austin, Texas. And I knew this was a kind of growing Sunbelt city and institution in the era of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. And, you know, I figured there was some kind of um, overlap. There was some kind of intersection between the political work as first a congressman and then as a senator of Lyndon Johnson and um, the University of Texas and Austin urban development. And so um, I applied for a grant and um, got out to the Lyndon Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library and Archives on a hunch, and it fortunately paid off because I realized then that the um, the Balcones uh, Research Center was in fact part of a, the product of a, uh, the political work and the process of bringing home federal resources by Lyndon Johnson, um, and um, you know, Berkeley in the 1960s, uh, this is one that kind of everybody knows in some fashion and extending that analysis to issues of university expansion, urban development, um, was kind of a, kind of a no, a no brainer. Um, that's what I did for the dissertation. And then for the um, research on the book project, um, I wanted to bring it up to date to the 2000s. And so um, I had kind of shied away from Ivy League type institutions. But, um, you know, the resurgence and the transformation of Cambridge within um, Metro Boston, and the kind of rivalry, but also collaboration between MIT and Harvard University, uh, were a very compelling example of the engagement of universities in this kind of new economy driven in part by, by Dole Act and licensing and commercialization of research, but then also their work in partnership with um, redeveloping um, urban centers in a new way, in this new wave in the 90s, 2000s, and then now the 2010s. Um, I should say about uh, Ball State and Muncie. I mean, in fact, when I was thinking about going to graduate school, I wanted to write something on Kalamazoo and Western Michigan University. And, you know, I had to give up on that dream. I didn't think, or, or I came to realize or came to believe that, um, you know, 
I would not find much purchase um, thinking about uh, an impactful dissertation and a impactful book that one mid-sized university and one mid-sized city uh, would kind of grasp or arrest the attention of the historical, you know, historical community. And so um, I wanted to maintain that kind of commitment or include a kind of modestly sized city and a kind of scrappy upstart institution of higher education. And so um, I was definitely, I'm very happy and uh, kind of maintain that whatever loyalty to an underdog or less celebrated type institution in including Ball State and Muncie, even though in the grand scheme of higher education institutions, Ball State is, you know, pretty high up on the, um, on the ladder of research orientation and enrollment and so forth. But I wanted to at least extend or gesture towards some kind of, um, representative and an in, in inclusive reckoning with medium-sized cities, medium-sized institutions. Did you find it challenging then on the level of writing or analytical synthesis to take these disparate narratives and these kind of relationships that university administrators across the country have with their local governments, their state governments, uh, uh, the federal government, and kind of make a, make a bigger picture? Heck yes. It was, it was really difficult. And, you know, what you see on the printed page, I hope is modestly successful. Uh, but that's probably the 10th or 12th, you know, f- basically full draft, um, since I started, since I started the project as a dissertation and had basically every point of review, whether it was graduate advisor and the dissertation, whether it was, um, the first, uh, readers for the university presses that I submitted to, or whether it was the editor at, um, University of Pennsylvania Press, um, kind of looking at revisions, um, everyone said, you've got to do more to tie these together. You've got to make sense, uh, like help us see this, these individual cases as more of a broader story, which is what I wanted to do. Um, but it took a good deal of writing and rewriting and rethinking how one led into another in terms of chapter transitions, in terms of um, shifting and overlap in historical eras, in terms of the draw, the way that the institutions drew upon um, first local and then federal resources, um, as well as trends in urbanization, urban development, um, dealing with fiscal issues. Um, urban renewal, as well as challenges of um, demographic change, economic change, and so forth. Uh, One thing, maybe two things that helped in that process of bringing these disparate cases together on the university side was that over the course of the 20th century, um, leading um, education administrators 
increasingly shared ideas and then developed public policy together. Um, so they shared practices. They thought of themselves as a set of shared um, institutions with interests in common. And so um, looking at organizations like uh, the AAU, like the ACE, uh, were useful in understanding um, how university administrators at different universities thought of themselves as part of a shared enterprise. Um, and by the same token, um, when thinking about cities, the increasing capacity and the increasing engagement with the federal government and federal resources brought to cities, whether it be in uh, the Great Depression and the New Deal or during um, mid-century and um, post-World War II urban redevelopment funds or tax credits, um, the federal government engaged all of these cities in in kind of shared ways or with a commonality that helped me see them as part of um, a broader narrative or helped me write these in a way that I hope can help audience members and readers understand these as, as part of a, a broader set of trends. On that note about the ACE and these other organizations of universities and colleges, I'm wondering if that was not tempting for you to go and look at those records. Um, I think, you know, as you were discussing the deliberation over each case study, it became apparent to me that narrowing down the source base must have been one of the most difficult parts of this project because one can always go into the social history of a neighborhood or a city deeper. So that's one, you know, you could, you could dig down deeper, but you could also, um, I imagine there would be also the temptation to kind of track this idea of universities as a lobby, as an increasingly self-conscious constituency. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I didn't use the ACE archives, for example, and there were few national institutions where I went to their archives. Um, and in part, that was a kind of pragmatic choice about where did I have uh, money and time to spend and travel. Um, and uh, during graduate school, during, during coursework, um, a professor said, he, uh, this is Maris Vanovskis at the University of Michigan, he had said he had written a book on the history of Head Start. And he said, well, I probably had about two more years of research that I could have done, but I had enough research to write the book. And um, that stuck with me, that idea that you can write, I think, a meaningful book and one that makes a compelling case that holds together and does a lot of things without having looked at every document, every place. Um, and in terms of thinking about my research as like uh, coming together in a book, 
you know, the way I try to think about it now is that I want to do enough research to write a book that people want to read and that they will find it compelling and convincing and interesting. And, you know, I don't, I don't think you get any points for going beyond that or writing, you know, looking at every document or researching, um, spending time in every archive, you know, just to confirm something that you already know. Um, so, so I think everybody has to make a set of pragmatic choices, largely in service of the thing you're producing. For me, it was a book. In other cases, I had other research or siphon some of the research off to um, articles and other efforts. Uh, but that certainly was a consideration. Uh, now, I mean, I will also say, you know, many of the university archives that I looked at had a good number of publications and some of the relevant documents in the president's papers. So, for example, um, Lawrence Kimpton, who worked with both the um, American Council on Education, a subcommittee therein, and um, the Association of American Universities, he led, he was the um, chancellor of um, the University of Chicago um, in the 1950s. He led initiatives in both the AAU and the ACE in um, organizing urban universities to lobby for, write, and then support and implement urban renewal um, funding and urban renewal programs. And so to get that aspect of the story, both to tell the University of Chicago side of the story and to tell the national story, I just needed to look at the Kimpton papers at the University of Chicago because he was involved in all of those conversations. And so it was a, uh, what I usually call like, like a cheap or an economical way to get into that national conversation without having to have, um, you know, months of research at the ACE in Washington, D.C., for example, which I tried to get into, but actually um, couldn't. That answers a question that I was very curious about, which were which was the the transportation of different policy and legal methods of seizing property and um, re, you know remaking it as the universities saw fit. Um, a, a very important actor in the book is. Julian Levy, uh, the University of Chicago alum and attorney who advised uh, Clinton uh, as to their urban renewal schemes, and I'm so it was it was via these mechanisms. I'm I'm assuming that Levy's um, legal means of remaking university neighborhoods traveled across the country to places like Berkeley and places like Cambridge. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Julian Levy, that guy was so impressive and such an evil genius. Um, you know, I read a you know, f- few kind of paragraphs about him in um, Arnold Hirsch's uh, book and so kind of knew the basics 
of him. But um, he was the executive director of the Southeast um, Chicago Commission, SECC. And he also taught at the University of Chicago. His, I think maybe his grandfather was one of the founders of the University of Chicago. He was really um, tightly woven into the fabric of the University of Chicago. And he led, or they described the SECC as the urban renewal arm of the university. And I got to say, that was almost, the urban renewal programs were almost single-handedly created by Julian Levy, first to serve the purposes of the University of Chicago, and then as a means of, um, as a means of building national support for, for those programs or those ideas, um, you know, he kind of like extended those and, and included uh, a wide array of other universities and communities um, into a national coalition to get the legislation passed. And then um, he also had, he did some consulting with places like um, Carnegie Mellon, as well as MIT and a number of other universities around the country to say, this is the new urban renewal program that I created. And this is how you university administrators can draw upon them. So they circulated through these kind of special committees at ACE and AAU. Um, and then Julian Levy did that kind of um, side consultation um, to teach uh, university administrators like himself how to use those. Um, yeah, I mean, I cannot say enough good and bad things about uh, Julian Levy. I, I should say in terms of the kind of compromises and challenges of doing archival research. Um, the then executive director of the SECC, when I was in graduate school, would not let me into their archives. He said, uh, without letting me see any kind of finding aid, uh, he said, let me know what you want and I'll let you see it. And I was like, I don't like, how could I possibly know what I want? I don't know what you have. However, um, Levy and Kimpton were in contact, not just Kimpton, but his successor, George Beadle, who was a Nobel Prize winning um, geneticist, and then um, Beadle's successor, Edward Levy, who was Julian Levy's brother, all chancellors and presidents of the University of Chicago, but especially with Kimpton. Julian Levy was in contact via memo with Lawrence Kimpton every single day, and I would say not infrequently two to three times a day in printed form, probably more via telephone. Uh, but almost everything that Levy did was hand in glove with Lawrence Kimpton and the leadership of the um, University of Chicago. And so the very robust U of C university archives attested to all of Levy's activities. And so I was able to kind of tell that story from the U of C archival uh, repository in their holdings. That's a great circumvention of a problem of access. Yeah. I'm wondering if you were able to do something similar with the property management firms that UChicago set up to manage its growing portfolio of rental properties, or were those sources not in the university archives? Uh, some of them were. They were in a variety of forms. So um, 
there were a number of listings of properties that were up for um, up for purchase um, in the 50s and then the 60s. University of Chicago wanted to buy properties first, like south of um, the Midway, um, and then throughout Hyde Park and um, and Woodlawn to, to we could charitably say stabilize the neighborhood to kind of um, arrest the demographic transformation of the expansion of um, the Black Belt and African-Americans into those two communities. Uh, Uncharitably, we could say they wanted to keep Black people out or to manage the segregation of the buildings and blocks and neighborhoods in Hyde Park and Woodlawn. So there were documents that um, indicated address by address by address what was up for uh, 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 for grabs or up for purchase or under consideration. Um, there was also photo documentation up to kind of the point of purchase. And then much of the material went over to McKee and Pogue and the um, various property management companies that um, the University of Chicago employed. And so it could be a little bit more difficult um, to track or to know exactly which properties we were talking about. However, um, I spent a ton of time at the Cook County Recorder of Deeds. And once I figured out that something called the Midway um, Properties Trust was a University of Chicago run institution to manage the properties, acquire them with a, with a kind of arm's length um, relationship, um, it allowed me to figure out, uh, or another way to figure out what the university was buying with their capital campaign funds and their endowment um, in a way that I could not get through the University of Chicago archives. Wow. I want to say, um, when I was in graduate school, um, Heather Thompson um, gave a couple talks at the University of Michigan. This is before she um, accepted a position there when she was working on um, her book on Attica. And, you know, she said, uh, use the phrase detective work uh, a number of times. And at that point, I thought like, well, listen, I mean, is detective work really the most apt um, metaphor for what we're doing? Uh, I feel like we're, you know, bringing a great deal more kind of structural analysis upon you know, the communities that we're writing about, et cetera, et cetera. And so I approach that with a little bit of skepticism. And, uh, you know, like once I started doing my own archival work, I realized how right she was and became even more impressed with the kind of patience that she exhibited in um, researching the Attica book. You know, and she tells a story at the beginning of that about finally getting into this um, storeroom kind of accidentally almost sneaking in um, to find you know bloody shreds of fabric and clothes from the actual uh, you, you know riot and violence itself uh, you know I think it is uh, both inspiring and impressive but can also um, be useful you know like when you're out at sea um, and navigating without a compass um, in the archives. Um, or maybe you don't even know like which archives are going to tell you what, you what you want to know. Like You need to have a North Star. 
And, um, you know, stories like Heather Thompson told uh, were my North Star when I was like, like, where the hell am I going to find these property records? Like, who is going to, who, who could possibly have kept this document? Um, and, um, you know, that y- it can be extremely tedious and time consuming and exhausting, but also extremely rewarding, um, to have that metaphor of detective work or that, um, you know, those kind of examples to draw upon when you're kind of like losing your own, um, confidence or you're losing your own kind of stamina in the archives or in the writing. And so that was very helpful for me. Absolutely. And I think another, another method of maybe pinning down these elusive sources is kind of almost like neighborhood uh, and amateur urban ethnography and reaching out to re- reaching out to scholars who other scholars who may work on the area. I'm wondering if 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 you found that to be helpful, or if if you found yourself kind of having a lot of conversations with uh, local historians, other scholars who have done case studies, uh, talking about their knowledge of the source base, uh, and may- maybe even non scholars about. Uh, where exactly do we find uh, the documents that we need? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the um, most rewarding things about this profession is um, the ability and the opportunities to kind of work in community and work in conversation with other other scholars, whether they be um, you kind of. Uh, faculty at universities, whether they be local historians, whether they be the um, researchers at um, local historical um, societies, because, you know, in almost, I felt like in almost every community and almost every case, you know, there were many people who knew the local story, the local source base, the local history better than I did, whether it was um, the university archivist, whether it was someone who had done a book on um, the development of particular subdivisions, um, or for me, there was an institution that was extremely helpful, um, the um, Urban History Dissertation Group at um, the Newbury Library. Uh, when I was a, a candidate and writing and living in um, Metro Chicago, um, the Urban History Dissertation Group was kind of a monthly meeting group of people who many of whom about half of whom were either based in Chicago and maybe another quarter were um, working on Chicago topics. Um, And so the vast majority of people involved in that group were kind of at the same stage had done research, whether it was a seminar paper or, um, maybe they had come or spent some time in Chicago and knew Chicago pretty well. That was um, extremely, extremely useful. And then every place that I went to, um, kind of getting to know um, the people in the community, whether it was Austin or whether it was Berkeley or whether it was um, Cambridge, um, you know, any of the places, 
was essential. Uh, I remember there was somebody, there was a staff member at um, Styles Hall, which was kind of a um, local um, YMCA institution, a community-oriented YMCA um, uh, you know, kind of building and host for events. It was um, important in the 1960s and still important now for um, community outreach. And the program director, I talked with him, he gave me a bunch of great leads and information and angles and introductions. And then he upbraided me very severely that my research was not doing enough. I was not critical enough of the University of California, um, either as um, an individual campus in Berkeley or as um, a university, like a statewide university system. Um, and, you know, really assailed my confidence um, just after you know, giving me these great leads. And so that was also a kind of an interesting moment of adjustment or reckoning with um, how like, responsive I could be to local communities, um, but also um, whether I was confident enough in my own kind of ambitions and framework for the research project um, and the book. Um, there was also, there were people in um, Hyde Park, who you know would not talk to me, um, I think had such resentment over the work of the University of Chicago, as well as the many students, sociology or history or um, the kind of urban studies students who um, came to talk to them again and again, or um, had an extractive relationship with the community, who would say like, "Yeah, hey, I'm just I'm not talking to another student. Like, you know, do it yourself, buddy." Um, that was also um, a challenge, but but I think eye-opening um, in deciding or understanding what some of the pitfalls were of a community-engaged scholar. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, to that point about the uneasy relationship between neighborhood residents and uh, nearby universities and their, their faculty and their students. I'm wondering if, um, as, as someone who's been involved in, in, in public history, if you think that uh, there, there would be a a good way or, or if, if you could say something about how universities might be more forthcoming about their historical role in segregating neighborhoods and discouraging uh, political dissent um, only because I feel like certain, you know, you think of a place like Berkeley and they've almost um, they've almost used historical student and community protest to brand themselves as sites of uh, edgy intellectual and cultural subversion. And I'm wondering if you think there's a way that that can be 
that history can be used by the university by universities in a more responsible way. Yes, and I think um, the key is for it not to be uh, led as an initiative by the central institution. The central administration of universities are fully wedded and responsive to the corporate entity. You know, they will always, will always serve what they think are the specific short-term best interests of the university as a corporation, not the university as a set of communities or the university that um, is set within a broader community unless there's a greater benefit to the kind of corporate body. And uh, as an example of this, um, I think back to um, my PhD uh, graduation. There was a university-wide graduation, and the president of the University of Michigan uh, was talking about all the great things going on. He said, the university, which was home to both like the birth of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and Young Americans for Freedom. And, you know, that's just a sign of how we're able and willing to support students. And I thought, oh my goodness, like this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And I scoffed um, in the stands of the football stadium at the, at the time because in, in my master's research, I read all about how um, university administrators wanted to like crush SDS, the local SDS chapter, and no time for and um, were diametrically opposed to the interests of SDS. I anticipate, you know, University of Michigan was a little bit more open to the agenda of Young Americans for Freedom, but the fact that with a straight face, the university president could like brag that this was that the University of Michigan was kind of like the, the, the birthplace or, you know, one of the founding sites of these two organizations was ridiculous to me, like disgusting to me. And so understand, you know, uh, w- with a, with a kind of clearer understanding of how university administrators work, I cannot say that I think a centrally university-led um, initiative to kind of share that history um, could do much good. But the other, some of the other members of the university and education communities and the local communities can make it unavoidable. Um, I think if faculty members or students or you know, staff, individual staff members um, conscientiously pursue this in, um, in concert with local community members, um, it can be an extremely meaningful and I hope non-cooptable or difficult to co-opt um, set of initiatives. And I would say not just on the question of um, like land acquisition and urban development, but all kinds of um, university engagement, whether it be something like um, 
for those universities with like hospitals and biomedical research um, histories, um, experimenting with and on um, local populations in in the hospitals, um, I think is also an aspect that a number of places must, a number of universities must reckon with. And, you know, it's it's basically got to come from the bottom up um, because it'll be more durable. It'll be less, um, and I hope it will be less likely to be twisted for corporate purposes or for marketing purposes. Um, and so I think it's possible. And, um, you know, I think there are a number of models, many of which would be difficult to scale or replicate, but it's got to be done more or less on like an individual or case-by-case basis um, and almost without or against the um, wishes of the higher administration. I think the reckoning with um, universities and um, slavery uh, I think is an example of this that need you know, basically a place like Georgetown or a place like the University of Virginia um, could no longer avoid um, admitting their culpability and then were forced to support um, like support these research agendas and to support these kind of like outreach and um, you know and these beginning reparations efforts. Yes. And I think another um, kind of over struggle uh, that overlaps between the university and the surrounding community that you that you cover in the book um, w- was around housing affordability. And you, you speak of the student proletarian alliance that was formed uh, in Berkeley and also of the the activism of the uh, Congress of Con- Congress on uh, racial equality uh, in Hyde Park in Chicago, and I'm wondering if you witnessed in the sources any of the kind of problems or hurdles to building those kind of coalitions, um, and if they are relevant for building new coalitions today, what would be those lessons? So real quick, can you uh, repeat the first part of the question? Like what, what are the, what were the, was it, was it a real, was it a real alliance? What are some of the obstacles and what are some of the lessons? Shall I take it like that? Yeah, absolutely. I think in a number of uh, university communities at in kind of the mid-century decades, whether it be um, the fifties, the 1960s, even a bit into the 1970s, uh, we do see kind of real and meaningful and, you know, moderately enduring um, alliances between um, students uh, as well as, um, you know, non-university members of the community. And we certainly saw this in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I did my... um, so my master's and PhD work where I studied um, a major housing strike um, in the late 1960s, just about the same time as um, the rent strike in, um, in Berkeley, uh, as well as um, there were rent strikes in Madison, Wisconsin. 
and these kind of preceded um, some of the um, kind of academic and student um, and um, working class um, alliances in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the 1970s. And I think these were real and also difficult to form and would be increasingly difficult now, but not impossible. Uh, I think in part, I mean, there was a, you know, there were those institutions, you know, the top public and private institutions um, were able and willing to draw from a much broader segment of society in the 1950s and 1960s. It was much more common to have um, working class students um, as like a, a larger segment of the undergraduate population. Um, and then, you know, in some cases, those working class students were, you know, like had a like lifetime affinity. They were working with their own people who simply weren't um, enrolled at MIT or Harvard or Wisconsin or Michigan or Berkeley. And, um, you know, that was in part enabled by the largesse and the um, capacity and the commitment of both states and the federal government to provide affordable higher education. And that's, you know, we're, we're in a far different place from that now. Um, so where there is affordable higher education and where there is, you know, a larger segment of the undergraduate and student population that comes from working class backgrounds, I think we can see uh, very reasonable and very meaningful um, commitments and alliances. And I also think that there's got to be, um, you know, kind of two-way directions of action and sacrifice. Um, you know, like something like a rent strike serves both, um, like, undergraduate students um, and non-university renters, like um, serves both members of the university community, the gown part, and um, members of the town part. Um, there are a handful, I think, of um, ongoing efforts like this. Um, number one would be uh, uh, um, reactions against, pri against private policing units at places like Johns Hopkins or the University of Chicago, because, you know, like university students don't want to get hassled. And, um, you know, like the people who often get hassled um, or brutalized are um, non-university members of the Woodlawn or Hyde Park community. Uh, and so this, this kind of alliance has to serve the non-university um, segments of, of the broader community. Um, you know, it's the, the kind of funding models and the very difficult, like, um, level of accessibility and economic, like, feasibility of, um, paying for higher education makes it real hard now. You know, basically, um, at the elite institutions, it's more expensive and the students are, 
either they come from very, very privileged backgrounds or they're in debt, you know, up to their necks. And I think they feel less of a willingness and their whole life has been kind of lived in hock. Um, and it's difficult to risk, you know, those student loans or those, uh, you know, kind of um, um, repayment deferments. Uh, and it makes it harder to take direct action against a university or to take direct action against a um, police force, for example. You know, I think we're, we're seeing maybe um, in the Black Lives Matter uh, type protests uh, a, a greater willingness to risk and people like um, Gene Denby and, and the, the um, NPR Code Switch uh, podcast explored this. Like basically why are, you know, privileged white people willing to now put their bodies on the line, um, you know, against the police? And in fact, it's because, you know, some of their forms of privilege have been, um, you know, withheld from them. And for building this university and community alliance, you know, there's, there's got to be a real um, eye to eye and shoulder to shoulder kind of level of commitment and identification that takes time to build. That's great. Thank you. I'm also wondering if you think that the the growth of uh, the the growth of campus police departments at, at at some of these private universities and the administration more generally um, is how how tethered that is to the university's role as a prop as a as a property holder i would assume the relationship is 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 very direct there yeah i think there is a a pretty close relationship between um property acquisition in the past or the expansionary we might even say like um imperialistic relationship um, of universities to their surrounding communities, to their willingness and their ability uh, to build private police forces to defend that territory. Um, I mentioned Johns Hopkins and the University of Chicago, which are, you know, in some ways like the, the um, poster boys for, for these efforts. But a place that I taught for a year after graduate school, Temple University, also you know, they plant flags all around the edge of the institution, uh, around the edge of campus. And they have, um, you know, they, they have in some ways drawn upon the model of the University of Pennsylvania in um, private policing, security forces, and kind of defending their borders because they're, um, you know, they're fearful of and they have a defensive attitude towards the surrounding communities. You know, like one of the fundamental ideas of uh, my book is that universities have pursued knowledge at the expense of neighbors, right? We can, we can think um, in a charitable or understanding fashion that, you know, universities uh, are trying to serve national interests, in some cases, global interests um, in creating knowledge in um, educating international students and educating American students for 
um, work internationally. Um, and that means that they are far less responsive to the local communities. And in some ways, like those national and international goals may be diametrically opposed to, um, to the interests of the local community. If a university administrator says, we want a strip of land for classroom buildings or dormitories or laboratories, um, it can be very difficult to, um, you know, to think for an administrator to think, uh, you know, maybe another 10000 or $100,000 of fair market value um, is appropriate. Or maybe we should build in some community resources to this, um, to this new building that we're designing at the edge of campus. Um, Clark Kerr, while he was still uh, chancellor at the um, University of California, Berkeley, before he was a system-wide president, um, made a presentation to um, the city of Berkeley's planning commission. And it said, he said, like, we have discovered the last three elements in the periodic table. We're doing fundamental like uh, fundamental scientific research of global importance that'll shape you know, like the limits of human knowledge. And mm, if that means that we, uh, you know, have to um, be a little less generous or a little less touchy feely with um, some of the landlords around campus, then so be it. You know, he said, we've got, other broader agendas to pursue. And I think that um, is illustrative of the mindset of universities in, we could say, balancing or pursuing one agenda over another. And how that relates to private policing is that um, if universities are um, unable to, say, control or heavily influence the practices of um, public or municipal police forces, um, then we could easily imagine how they shift to another um, idea that they've got to provide their own protection, whether it be for their students or for their property or for their well-being or their perceived reputation, which seems to be almost the highest value of, uh, of a corporate university. Um, I mean, I think ironically, you know, there's in almost every university community around the country, there is um, a question of the expansion of the university starving the municipality and the local government for resources. Uh, basically, you know, nonprofit universities, in many cases, don't pay taxes on their campus land. And so that starves tax revenue from the municipality and local government to be able to provide social services and policing. And so universities, you know, in some cases they can be compelled to provide what are called pilot um, payments, which is payment in lieu of taxes to make up for the lost tax revenue. But, um, you know, that just, gives resources away and cedes control to, you know, a democratic process. And I don't think university administrators particularly like that. So providing a private police force is a way to keep control of those resources, to maintain that reputation or that feeling of security um, and to protect the borders of the land that they've already acquired.
the you know the increasing resources of a lot of the biggest universities at the expense of the surrounding communities um is a, a, a real striking contrast to moments in your book where you describe university administrators approaching state officials at various levels for assistance. Um, and based on what you've just shared and, and um, based on kind of community struggles for universities to be more responsive to local needs, it seems now that certain community groups and individuals, local residents almost have a relationship with universities like the universities once had with the state. Yeah, in some cases, they have to kind of go hat in hand to universities to say, like, please, like, here's the evidence and here's the trouble that we face and that we hope you'll recognize in um, providing, you know, services to our community, whether it be um, lobbying for major pieces of transportation or civic infrastructure, or whether it be um, simply like sharing, sharing resources um, like open space, public parks, and things like that. Um, you know, I think universities, all the trouble and protests that they face, they deserve it and more. I mean, opening up university archives is a horrifying um, process. I mean, I recall when at the University of Chicago, uh, I went into the folders where um, like the vice president of business operations was first in conversation with um, administrators at the Illinois Institute of Technology, which had just kind of um, developed an urban renewal strategy. And then the University of Chicago administrators said, like, this is great great ideas all around. This is something we need to do even more intensely. And it basically meant we need to acquire land and, and then not invest in it and not maintain it in order to create blight so that we can then raise it and bring in state and federal redevelopment money. Um, also, like side benefit, uh, it will be extremely lucrative. Um, and so seeing these like really dis disheartening and infuriating kinds of initiatives in the 1940s and 1950s, but also seeing them kind of play out in the 1970s in Cambridge, um, you know, like leads me to believe that, you know, just about every criticism that community members have offered, um, like is justified and probably underplays the blame that universities bear in trying to pursue these global and national um, ambitions. Uh, but they, you know, they almost universally do it in a way that um, harms rather than helps the local community members. Like the best that we can say is that um, the, the stuff that follows displacement is fine or pleasant um, community resources or amenities. Um, you know, who doesn't want to see, uh, the kind of new development in, um, 
in Boston in the Alston neighborhood where Barry's Corner once stood. But, you know, 40 years ago, like that was a working class kind of industrial and service oriented um, community. And, you know, like, why wouldn't why wouldn't that have been better to invest in rather than acquiring, displacing and then redeveloping? You know, like given those options, you know, we we should have kept Barry's Corner. Harvard could and should have kept Barry's Corner as it was rather than or building in infill rather than kind of acquiring secretly and then displacing and then, um, you know, like digging holes in the ground and then letting them sit for five to 10 years before they're able to build anything. Now that you've kind of sharpened your critique of the universities through the research and writing of this book, I'm wondering if it's affected the way that you engage in campus and campus adjacent politics um, where you live. And I'm wondering if you um, have talked about that issue with other critical scholars of universities. So, um, I'll say, you know, at certain points in my career, I was much more active in the local community. Um, at Virginia Tech, um, you know, I certainly led students in research on um, displacement and redevelopment in the Blacksburg community. Blacksburg, where Virginia Tech is, is a um, small town, about 40,000 people, most of whom are um university students and affiliates. Um, it's really a company town, um, and it's hard to kind of rally um, the populace and residents to oppose the university in that setting. Um, however, um, I'm also involved in a, kind of a new research project on um, redlining and um, having students work on redlining research and local history on restrictive covenants, for example, um, and um, seeing the kind of work that um, university students and university faculty have done in other places about their local community, you know, I've seen that it can make a difference. It can empower um, local organizations or local residents, it can change the the kind of um, dynamic between the community, the, the like s- student group or the community sensitive university um, members, and the university administration. Um, and so, I I would say both from seeing my um, in my own research but also drawing on the wide array of um, community-engaged forms of scholarship um, that are ongoing today. I I mean, I I believe in it, and I believe in what it can do. Um, And, I mean, I would say, looking at some of the protest actions, we'll say, of the 1950s and 1960s, we can see that direct action protest works, right? We can't say it's perfect. We can't say um, the protesters get everything they want, but we can definitely see that there were significant um, victories. 
from some of the anti-segregation, some of the anti-development protests. I'll never forget when I realized that Bernie Sanders led uh, an occupation of the University of Chicago for several weeks uh, and got like some real concessions from from the university. Um, the um, related to my current research um, in Minneapolis in Hennepin, Hennepin County, Minnesota, the Mapping Prejudice Project um, out of the University of Minnesota is a model for. Um, community-engaged research that is informed and helps shape public policy. Um, the Minneapolis and Hennepin County uh, master plan incorporates the findings of the Mapping Prejudice Restrictive Covenant Research Group um, in really meaningful ways to, to kind of take on, affirmatively take on the legacy of racial segregation. Um, the kind of work that people have done with um, my own collaborative research project in mapping inequality on redlining in the homeowners loan corporation, um, you know, is also extremely meaningful. And what I would say is that the key goal has to be like community change and political change, not publication. Any kind of publication, whether it be print publication, digital publication, or any kind of um, like community engagement release, has to be. If you want it, to, if you want your research to be effective, it's got to be. It's got to have community impact and community values at the center, rather than. Um, like faculty advancement or university recognized publication. You know, sometimes those things can, can come along with it. But if you want to um, make your academic work relevant to the community and take on like, community engagement projects, you've got to put community at the heart of it and not um, university recognized publication. Are you then prioritizing those? digital uh, projects over um, future monographs or articles or um, how do you see it? um, How do you see those priorities of yours affecting your work in the future? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll tell you how it like worked out for me, how I think it can kind of work in the future and then how I am um, approaching research and publication um, going forward, um, I, when I was working on building the Ivory Tower, I formed a collaboration with a number of scholars, and we released the Mapping Inequality Project on the um, the mapping and security survey work of the Homeowners Loan Corporation, popularly known as like, the Origins of Redlining. And when I went up for tenure, like I, uh, I'll say, um, I had a um, son who was just a couple of years old. I was a widower because my um, first wife had passed away. And the absolute most important priority in my life was securing an income and um, making sure that I had, I could provide like a viable, um, uh, like upbringing for my son. And so tenure was the absolute most important way to get about that, um, to go about that. And so, um, I could not, I think, in good conscience, um, 
de-emphasize or advocate someone in that case to do something other than um, publishing a tenure book. Now, my own conscience and my own excitement over the project led me to, to basically pursue the redlining project and building the ivory tower at the same time. And I knew that there would be little recognition of um, mapping inequality in my tenure package. Um, I gave talks to the faculty and, you know, tried to work with my chair um, to make the case that this community-engaged scholarship had engagement with secondary research. It had primary source archival work, and it had community impact and recognition in cities across the country um, at its heart. All of the things that we care about for um, like university and faculty publication. So in my mind, they were kind of equal priority for my purposes, for my intellectual life and my, you know, kind of um, thinking about the impact of my work on the world. Um, my department in my university um, accepted mapping inequality as an asterisk, the digital project as an asterisk, or, you know, the, I kind of made the case that it should informally take the case, take the place, pardon me, of, you know, an, another article or two I would have done. Um, and we've kind of formalized that in our tenure and promotion guidelines now. Uh, but it's um, a no-brainer. It's not even close how much more impact mapping inequality has had than building the ivory tower. And I say that as a person who wanted to be a published author, and that's why I made my when I, why I went to graduate school, why I made it through graduate school, why I made it through um, the junior faculty years as a widower with a young son. Um, you know, because I believed in what a book could do for intellectual life and for a career and for um, understanding how we can understand the world around us. Um, so uh, going forward, you know, I've thought somewhat more broad broadly about audience and impact. I don't think that that means not pursuing um, books. And stemming from or flowing out of the digital work on mapping inequality and some of my other digital mapping work, I'm writing a book uh, on kind of the origins and the um, implementation and then the, um, the activism against redlining. Well, I'll call it like simply the, like the rise and fall of redlining in an explicit federally directed sense. Um, I'm not prioritizing a university um, press as the publication because, you know, I, I think, you know, I want a broad swath of the population to want to and be able to read and relate to um, the story of how we, you in the, like, as the American public and with um, federal agencies at the heart of it, um, you know, kind of institutionalized racial segregation in spatially and in home finance. Um, and so um, kind of a popularly oriented book is my next major research project. Um, you know, if that 
gets me to full professor, great. I think it would and should, and I'm going to make the case, but you know, I don't care if that one does or something else does. Now, I would not, um, I would not so cavalierly advocate that um, any other faculty, junior faculty member or someone coming out of graduate school, um, you know, pursue those same priorities. And I was extremely fortunate in almost all ways to kind of have the security, the support of family and friends. Um, and, you know, I guess I also, if I, I lucked out. I didn't think I would get a tenure track job and didn't think I would actually, um, you know, become a university uh, professor. And so that gave me a little more um, willingness to, um, you know, take risks. Uh, you know, also as a, you know, kind of middle-class white dude, um, I certainly faced fewer barriers and I'm sure all audiences were more willing to listen to my case that some of these alternate modes of publication and scholarship should count and are evidence of real impact. Um, I think within the academy and within history departments and the um, historical profession, we have to be open to different modes. We can be medium agnostic about publication and what that means for people's career. And I think we can, uh, we need to think a little more abstractly about what we really prioritize in evaluating scholarship, whether it be community engaged scholarship or whether it be discipline focused um, scholarship. And so I think broadening the criteria for tenure and promotion and, you know, even thinking about like tenure and promotion as not being the be all and end all of the construction and development of historical knowledge. Um, you know, like I'm sure, I'm sure, I mean, I swear I learned as much from, um, you know, members of local historical societies from archivists and from popular authors as I, as I did from, um, you know, scholarly authors and research professors. And so recognizing that their work is essential to all modes of um, the, the production of historical knowledge, I think, is, is useful in rethinking um, what scholarship looks like. I agree that conceiving of intellectual work broadly is going to be increasingly important as the job market continues to dry up and as people scholars who care who care about issues of of uh popular justice uh seek to um um seek to produce work that is that is meaningful so i i i very much look forward to um um, seeing what that second uh, trade press book look trade press book looks like, and uh, exploring uh, mapping inequality, and I uh, I really appreciate you sitting down to talk with me today, Wadale. Thank you so much. Sure, and let me take one more stab at maybe being a little more concise with my last answer, which is that you know I think um, a tenure track job at a research 
university or a small liberal arts college is not the be-all and end-all of the historical profession for people with um, advanced degrees or PhDs. And I think, um, you know, it's, we can't count on that as a major or meaningful or certainly the main um, career path for people with um, history, history PhDs and graduate education in history. I think we all should think about what our real impact on the world is, whether it be the local community, whether it be um, dispersed, um, dispersed impact on public policy, um, and whether, um, you know, whether satisfying our colleagues from an earlier generation is the top priority of historical scholarship. I submit that it is not. Just as I said that um, like um, community members and student groups within universities, if they make a big enough impact, then university administrators will have to follow along. And I think with um, if individual members of the faculty, as well as, you know, like people in um, contingent status, um, you know, if they can illustrate and have been illustrating the very meaningful impact of their scholarship and their wide array of outputs. And I think the, the rest of the academic community will follow along. I don't mean to put the onus or responsibility on um, people in contingent positions, but I think we're seeing really excellent work from um, people who do online magazines or journals, for example, who do um, podcasts and these modes of synthesizing and translating and relating scholarship, um, as well as um, the kind of alt-act type of work that um, people use, uh, uh, that people, positions that people have to publish their research in alternate formats can be, um, you know, a, a very meaningful and significant and impactful way to lead the rest of the higher education community and historical discipline along. Thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you uh, sitting down with me today. It's been a pleasure, Patrick.